Hi everybody, Lauren Mole here along with Judd. We are actually not at Broadcast Park today. We are coming to you from the exotic Wiki Wiki Grok Shop here in the beautiful Napa Valley. I love doing shows from here. It's such a good vibe. And today we're, uh, we're very fortunate. We've got a very cool guy. He's sitting with us right now. We're about to start the show. It's Niall Zacherly. Woo! Yeah, that, that's all. That's all you need to say. Save the rest for the show. We're going to have fun. You are a great winemaker, a master brewer, and I can't wait to delve into what it is you do and maybe even get to taste a thing or two. In the meantime, we invite you to join Judd and his family's winery on the south end of Silverado Trail at Judd's Hill Winery here in Napa Valley, California, USA. Thanks, Lauren. Visiting information can be found at judshill.com. And while you're on the website, you can, um, let's see, you can also see some of our quirky videos. You can um, poke around and see, well, you can see what wines are available and even put some in your cart. And just for being an avid listener, type in coupon code JNVS, all in lowercase letters, please. And you'll get 15% off your entire wine order. That is one heck of a good deal, Judd. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty good deal just for listening to a podcast. If you want a better deal than that, of course, there is the Judd's Hill Wine Club. Information is also available online at our website. It's free to join. You get a chance to try all of our wines, invitations to events, and lots of other cool happenings. And uh, we'd love to have you as part of it. No time to waste, Judd. Let's get on with the show. I'm not wasting time. I'm telling them about a great time they'll have at Judd's Hill. Okay, anyway, let's start the show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a fantastically fun Finkel Fest. Get ready for another heap full of fascinating things to know from witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show. No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio. You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show. On Judd's Napa Valley Show, Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show. And now, coming to you from the exotic South Seas view of Napa Valley's most exclusive cocktail lounge, the Wiki Wiki Grog Shop. Say aloha to this taste of paradise. It's time for some exotic discussions on Judd's Napa Valley Show. I'm fog cutter Lauren Mole, and here's your host, Chad Fingelstein. Aloha, Lauren Mole. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine, Jed. How about you? I'm I'm great. I'm always great whenever we're here in in the midst of the mysterious and exotic South Seas beauty of the Wiki Wiki Grog Shop. Love love doing shows from here. You know what? Me too. That's great. What's new with you? What's what's the life of Lauren Mole got going on? Well, I have two singing uh, engagements coming up this week. Uh, on March 16th, uh, me and my friends from the Everybody is a Star Foundation are honored to be singing the Star Spangled Banner at the uh, upcoming Warriors game when they take on the Orlando Magic. You are an all-star. That is another arena gig for you. you you've, you've, you've performed there before, haven't you? Right, uh, at Oracle Arena. You've performed there. You've been at the Oakland Coliseum with the Oakland A's singing. You've been at the, uh, the Giants, right? Exactly. At uh, what's it called now? It's about to call Pac Bell Park. AT and T Park. I go to the game. It's a AT and T Park. Of course. Thank you no. very much. They keep changing the name, Judd, and I don't know why. <laughs> well, you know, it might have something to do with money. Yeah, corporate but issues. Speaking of money, your money—you keep getting these great gigs to go sing at these uh, huge sporting events. That must make you feel pretty good. It sure does. Yeah, it's very exciting. Okay, March sixteenth, Oracle Arena. Come on out, folks. Watch Lauren Mole sing the Star Spangled Banner once again, backed yes. by popular demand. Yes, with everybody as a star. Everybody's star.org. 
the organization that uh, helps the special needs individuals like myself showcase our talents and broadcast quality music videos professionally made. Yeah, they're they're phen- phenomenal. So everybodystar.org. You can go there, find out more about it. And of course, see the dashing Lauren Mole's own music video. That's right. And also another singing engagement coming up the day after. Ah. Uh, from three to oh, six. Wait, or, that's that's St. Patrick's Day. You got a yes. you got a holiday gig. That's right. Actually, three to five. My mistake. Okay. Three to five at Downtown Joe's with Napa Valley Voices, led by the great Cindy Skinner. Wonderful. Okay, couple opportunities to see uh, Mr. Lauren Mole live and in person. That's right. You've heard his voice. Now see his face. Hear and hear his lovely singing. He's a songbird. Folks. That's right. And drink drink a lot of beer and eat a lot of corned beef and cabbage. I'm all about drinking lots of beer, and I think we're gonna get into that in this show. Okay. Which maybe we should get to. I, you know, usually ask me what's going on with me. Plenty, you know, all I'd say is go to judshill.com, see what's happening. We've got events. We've got a cruise to Alaska coming up this summer. Tons of fun. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it at the moment. Because That's fine. Plenty to talk about with our guest today. Would you like to introduce this fine person? Sure, Judd. Our guest today's got some style. Want tips on being cool? Give him a dial. He's known around here for his most excellent wine and craft beer, our pal, Mr. Red Guy, Niall. Hey, Niall Zachary. Hey, thank How's you. How's that for an introduction, Niall? Wild. Wild. <laughs> Wild, man. You've just been Lauren Mold. Yeah. It's one of his signature rhyming intros. Niall Zachary. Great to see you, man. I've, I've known you a long time, but I've, I don't think we've ever really sat down and like had a one-on-one conversation. This is... I'm looking forward to finding out a little bit more about you. Yeah, a lot, oftentimes in passing and uh, uh, over at uh, wine events of some sort right. or another. And uh, yeah, never never a lot of time to sit down because we're usually running around uh, doing what we do. Running, definitely. And you're one of those guys I always think, like, that's a cool dude. I need to, I need to sit down and get to know him a little better. And today's the day. You're a, a vintner. You're a brewer. We're going to talk about... All of this. I think when I first met you, you were not quite into the uh, beer business yet. I know you've been brewing beer a long time, but when I met you, it was through the wine business. You were making wine. Gosh, I mean, I don't know if we need to get into your whole resume or not, but I'm trying to remember who you were making wine for at the time. Probably more than one client. You've you've had a couple, but um, this is many years ago. This probably goes back more than ten years. I mean, have you always been a winemaker? What, what what's your background? Like, where did you grow up? How did you? Learn to do all this? What, what got you here? First of all, where, where are you from? Are you um, from the Bay Area, actually, from uh, the Marin County area. So my folks moved from the East Coast. Uh, they're from the Midwest originally, but they moved right. out West. So I grew up in Marin County, and then my parents divorced. Uh, my father married a Napa girl, so I spent a little bit of time up here off and on, but never really going to school. So spent some time up here. And uh, back in the 80s, I guess late 70s and early 80s, and then my father and my stepmother moved to Hawaii. So this tiki bar oh, is yeah. uh, very familiar to me. That's uh, right. You've got some Hawaiian roots mm-hmm. there. So, so yeah, here we are. Yeah, We're soaking no, in this it. is, t- yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, just like back in high school, going to my old buddy's uh, tiki bar and, uh, you know, drinking drinking some, uh, some, some things from the, from the, from the shelf there. Uh, I've been remiss, you know, speaking of from the shelf, do you need a little something before we get to, you brought some stuff, so it wasn't like my automatic reaction to give you something, because it sounds like we're going to be tasting some of yours. Do you need a little palate warmer first? We got. Nice I think selection. I'm good. I think I'm good. I think we, we're gonna, you know, we'll get into some <laughs> of these other goodies I've got, some suds. Okay, um, excellent. But uh, yeah, so I've spent some time in Hawaii and uh, um, and went to high school there, and, and then 
basically started brewing there when I was 18, 19. And that kind of kept with me as I went off to college in Santa Cruz. And then I eventually realized rather than being an art major, I wanted to study brewing. So I went to UC Davis and then ended up getting a degree in, in beer and winemaking there. All right. So so the, the, the brewing started off as just a, a lark, little hobby, something you did with uh, with your dad as a as a kid, right? I yeah, mean, the father-son thing, you know, right? Yeah, some some guys, you know, work on cars with their sons or whatnot. But uh, how old were you? Were you like a little kid brewing beer with your dad? No, or? just 18, 18. Oh, 18? So, okay. yeah, yeah. It was kind of like senior year or something like that. And we got some stuff. Of course, getting ingredients in the, uh, you know, I guess it was 1990 or 1990. Yeah, 1990 we started brewing. And so just getting the ingredients was in Hawaii. Of course, the hops mm. looked like they were many years old uh, oh. but you know you kind of get what you get and you know sometimes it turns out good sometimes it doesn't but yeah that was kind of the uh uh of of the idea and then i kind of kept doing it I, I i literally was like wherever i moved to i was like i need a i need a gas range so i can <laughs> boil the wort and right. make the beer and and uh couldn't have you know wasn't of legal age so i couldn't go buy it so i was gonna make it right you know i'm gonna veer off for just a moment and tell us Quick story about going off to college. We're about the same age, I think. Might be just exactly the same age. So around 1990, I'm off to college. And same thing. I'm away from home. No fake ID. Would love to be able to have a drink. You know, Napa Valley, you kind of grew up appreciating having little sips with dinner of whatever's on the table. So, you know, I wanted to continue that. So I, I couldn't buy the stuff, but I did like you. I knew how to make something alcoholic <laughs> and my yeah. dad used to joke that i was the only kid he ever heard of that didn't send home for money he sent home for yeast yeah because <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can't go to the grocery store and just use that baker's yeast you yeah. gotta get like good yeast to get some good stuff going and yeah so i, I was kind of popular in the dorm yeah no yeah. That, that would make you popular exactly yeah. uh, i always had booze under the under the sink so what, what did you make uh, well, you know what it was pretty terrible actually but most of the folks didn't care you know it was just something to drink it was apple cider mainly huh? I just go to the grocery store. I'm not giving instructions right now, listeners. I'm just telling you what I happen to do, and I'm not saying it turned out well because it really wasn't very good. But I would take apple cider and even add more sugar just to try to ferment it to the absolute maximum alcohol it could. <laughs> and then it would still stay a little sweet because it just got you know toxic in there for the yeast. The revelation came when I would collect all the used um, like tequila bottles from the other guys in the dorm. Mm-hmm. They'd pass them over to me, and then I would fill up the bottles with my cider cap them up put them in the fridge and i think about a, a month into it i cracked one of the bottles and you know what i heard yeah yeah and i had sparkling cider nice yes the champagne of the freshman dorm right uh, there petulant yeah exactly that that was that was really a, a wonderful moment when i realized what i had there but anyway sparkling we're not talking cider. about me yeah we're talking about you um, it was pretty lousy cider still, but it was fun that it was bubbly all of a sudden. Well, the spider, uh, the spider, the cider, spider cider, <laughs> uh, the cider industry has really taken off That's in the last. Hey, 10 isn't years. that what Peter Parker drinks? Spider cider. Spider <laughs> cider. Ah, uh, yeah. That, that hey, gives him extra energy. That's it. All right. I'm sorry. So you were making it at college because you couldn't quite buy it yet. Yeah, and right. then just kept brewing it, and uh, when I was 21, I finally started entering competitions, of course, and the folks that were selling me all the uh, brewing supplies, it was pretty funny, because I went in there, and I was like, I'm finally 21. They're like, what? Um, oh, so, uh, yeah, no, it was it was uh, a good time, but it, it's what kind of spurred my interest in science, literally, and, and so that, that got me to 
you know, transfer up to UC Davis and, and pursue that journey and then realizing, well, I think I should do wine as well. And, and so, but yeah. you had originally been an art and design student? Yeah, that was kind of my goal. My mother was an artist, and, yeah. and so I kind of was more inspired by her and what she was doing versus my father, who was a, a, a nephrologist, a kidney specialist, oh. which I just, you know, I'm not a blood and guts kind of guy, so I realized that wasn't for me. You were born to do what you're doing right now. I mean, I always think of um, winemaking, and certainly brewing can go along with that, as a great marriage of art and science. And you were born of a marriage of art and science right there. So you're doing exactly what you were born to do right now. Yeah, somehow, somehow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did. All right, so you move over. To, that was at Santa Cruz, and then you move over to UC Davis? Mm-hmm. Was that for grad, or you just transferred? I just transferred just over as an undergraduate degree in, in fermentation science. I went through the brewing program, the Master Brewers program, and then uh, in 96, and yeah, enjoyed that, and then went off and did an internship at Sterling doing experimental winemaking, that vintage, oh. and uh, learned quite a bit about winemaking. Uh, Bill Dyer was up there. That was um, great. Dick Blazer, uh, Daniel Roberts, uh, Kerry Gott was the, uh, I think he was the vice president back then, and it was owned by the Brothmans. So it's funny, right. a lot of these characters, all these people are, are still in the industry today and in different, you know, elements or, you know, in production. Yeah, those are or, big deal names you got to work with. Yeah, and, and uh, just, you know, great, great opportunity, but it also really drove more like the, it just kind of opened the door of wine even more. It was mm-hmm. like, wow, this, this wine industry is just, you know, pretty magical. There's a lot going on. And, you know, just the connection between the raw material grape and how you farm it and what you did out there in the vineyard and how it impacted the the final product was um, pretty illuminating at that point. I mean, UC Davis is a, a great place to study, but when it's, it, it seems in a lot of ways you're so focused on research that you sometimes it's hard to see the forest from the trees or the grapes and the vines or however you want to look. Yeah, you're too buried in a, yeah. uh, the minutiae. And so I, the internships are always such a great way to, to get exposed. And so I went back to Davis, I TA'd the brewing classes and finished my degree and then left uh, UC oh, Davis and kind of going, hey, beer, wine, beer, wine. And I remember uh, I was interviewed uh, over at Farniente with uh, Ashley Heisley, who's, uh, I believe, still at Farniente Consulting. And she kind of told me, she's like, Niall, you got to figure out what you want to do, beer or wine. <laughs> so now I, can, now I can honestly say, well, I can do them both. You can do them both. And, and you do them well. Um, what, what, I hear that term master brewer. So what does that mean? I know you go through a special course. What's in, what, what does that entail? Yeah, I think that's a good question because uh, people throw around the word a lot. It's kind of like uh, I'm a winemaker or a, yeah. a immunologist or these titles. But yeah, being a master of something I think is, you know, it's always up for the interpretation of maybe that program that's defining the parameters of that uh, title. I suppose. And there's a lot, there are accreditations that go with getting that title. In the Institute of Brewing and Distillation that uh, I got an associate membership with, it was like a two-day exam, they have a Master Brewer Certificate, although it's kind of requires quite a bit more that can't really be, I don't know if it's being offered right now, um, but uh, again, you're kind of taking this London-based exam here and it's, I think it's given around the world in, in three or four locations. But uh, needless to say, yeah, I think what is a master brewer? Uh, I think it's just someone that uh, really controls the 
production of the brewing, mm-hmm. uh, the creation of the beers, uh-huh. the sourcing of raw materials. And, and, and I guess in a lot of ways that kind of coalescing the creative and the technical into a finished product and having a pretty good hold of the science and art behind that, I think would be a great way to just say like, you know, do you need a degree to be a master brewer? Like if you're running a brewery and you, you're doing those things, well then I think you pretty much qualify, yeah. you know, and the same thing applies to winemaker. I mean, you don't need to go to school to be a winemaker. You know, you don't need a fermentation science degree or anything. You know, you just have to have the passion and drive to actually do it and make it happen. And, and, and make it really who you are. You didn't really stick around, though, right? You 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 worked up at Sterling, and then you didn't you globetrot for a while, did some winemaking. Yes, yes. So I I, le- I went uh, after UC Davis. I got uh, hired at Anderson Valley Brewing Company to direct their quality control and and production. Oh, so uh, yeah. So I was a brewer for Anderson Valley, and then directed quality assurance there, well, uh, which which was fun. You know, post college, you know, in Anderson Valley, a town of five hundred, and. Uh, a little bit, you know, limiting. At, at yeah. A really well known. Yeah. Spot. Yeah. Um, but I always like to joke, you know, you're living out there in Anderson Valley, it's, it, it's a little bit, you know, uh, limiting, you know, you feel like, you know, you date every girl about two or three times before you kind of <laughs> <laughs> try and. I thought uh, growing up in St. Helena was bad in that respect. Well, uh, there, yeah. You've got a little bit more here, more, uh, but yeah. So it, it kind of ran its course. I was there from 97 through the fall of 98. And then in January of 99, I left for uh, a trip around the world. So I put the stuff in storage, gave a bunch of stuff away and uh, had a big bag and a backpack and, and hopped on the plane for New Zealand and hitchhiked around New Zealand for a, th- a few weeks and met with winemakers and just kind of cruised around and then... So it wasn't aimless wandering. You were no. there to get into the wine business or at least learn a little bit about what was going on down there in the wine? Yeah. In the fall of 98, I'd worked at Navarro Vineyards with Jim Klein oh, yeah. in Anderson Valley. Spot. So I left the brewery to kind of focus back in on wine and that kind of gave me another kind of platform on which to, to kind of get back into wine. And then from there, I, I had a uh, job as an assistant winemaker at Piero and Margaret River. So my initial kind of motive was like travel around the world, get there by, you know, February 15th for uh-huh. vintage. And I stayed there for about five months um, working there. Yeah, so it seems like you went on an amazing race. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was a, it was definitely a journey, uh, you know, and, and you never know. I knew I wanted to work uh, that fall vintage in Bordeaux. And so just kind of piecing that together while I was traveling, traveling, trying to get, you know, all those connections and, and put that job together. But yeah, it was definitely, you know, you're kind of out of your own element and oh, there's no doubt. And so just getting the comfort and the connection and yeah, it was a fun journey. And you ended up in Bordeaux. You did work there. Yeah. I worked there for the fall harvest of 99. I think it started in July, end of July, maybe, or first week of August and then left there, uh, the first week of December, somewhere around there and came back to the U S and, and then Bo Barrett hired me as his assistant winemaker from 2000 to 2004. Former guest on this show as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Oh yeah, yeah the alma mater I call it. Yeah, uh, Chateau Montalena alma mater. Good sport. He and his wife Heidi um, were both in, and uh, poor folks. Man, we got this guy that um, not really a guy. It's more of an it that barges into our show from time to time, and 
you're in luck. I mean, as far as I know, he's in the shop back in the lab, but a wine snob robot just barges in the studio from time to time. I'm not sure he even knows where the WikiWiki Grog Shop is. He's not bothered us while we record here and sat down and it's a robot that was programmed to be a wine connoisseur and be able to appreciate and talk about wine made with parts we found in the recycling bin outside of uh, Robert Parker's garage but somehow the circuiting I mean I'm not a tech guy like you know I had people kind of put this together reversed so instead of a wine like aficionado total wine snob and just sat down and like eviscerated their wines to them and they, they, they took it in stride. They realized, you know, this is just technology gone wrong. Couldn't take it personally. And they, they just had a good laugh. Um, wow. Well, I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> yeah, go back and listen. All there, it's on the podcast. It's from a few years ago at this point. But that was an embarrassing yet really funny moment. And it, it solidified in my um, mind what cool people the Barretts are, that they could just sit and take it and laugh. Anyhow, I get asked this a lot about Napa and Bordeaux. I've been to Bordeaux. I've never worked in Bordeaux. I've never made wine in Bordeaux. I've had Bordeaux wine. I've read a little bit about it. But somebody who's kind of done both, what do you do? You see much to compare, contrast, to differentiate? Uh, are there some key points that you would tell folks who might ask that question? Because it's something I get from you know time to time with regularity. And there are some uh, quite a bit of similarities. Uh, and in I know case by case it's tough. But if you're going to generalize, like if there's an approach or a philosophy. I think that the biggest, uh, it depends on how you want to kind of approach answering the question. Okay. So, um, cause it's such a broad question. It is. And, and, and I don't so, know how to answer it. so, I mean, you can start for, well, let's talk about the vineyards or mm -hmm. let's talk about the climate and the soils and, you know, kind of what that represents from a geologic kind of standpoint. And that, you know, when you have the foundation of geologic history kind of as your platform right. there with, you know, kind of the soil and the origin, uh, then you can kind of build off of like some of the methods that have kind of evolved in both kind because of, of the earth. Yeah, because yeah. of the way the wines are, because of the climate and the challenges that they've had. And then obviously, you know, you can come at it from like, what's the market environment like mm. and how are these wines made today? You know, I would say that if we looked at the wines of the 80s and 70s and prior to versus the wines of, of ours during the same time, there was really... I mean, I suppose there were some similarities, but again, geography, geology, you know, and climate play a big role in the flavor composition of, of those resulting wines, uh, just based on that. And so it's really kind of a tough thing to answer. There is definitely like a method Medocian, like you'd go to every chateau, and even though I was only at a Cru Bourgeois, you'd go to a first growth, and they'd be making the wine more or less the same. Really, in a similar um, fashion. Obviously, the technical side gets enhanced, and it's also kind of weird to have a classification, you know, that was in the 19th century right. that's determining the status and quality of these grapes. And what was kind of a bummer was that you could have some pretty good soils, but because you're classified so long ago that you're almost forced into a market price point position. And so it wasn't like if, yeah, I mean, unless you wanted to just be like a table wine, just, you know, throw a finger at the whole system and say, you know what, we don't want our classification. We're just going to be table wine. But the problem is the consumer is trained to purchase based on these kind of yeah, set parameters from the 19th century. And it's, the price. Mm -hmm. so I think some, some of them in the lower classifications, uh, like the Cru Bourgeois have, uh, have tempted to kind of, um, 
I don't know, get around that a little bit and be a little bit more creative. Whereas here in the U.S., we can kind of do anything uh, and reinvent ourselves if necessary. A lot more freedom uh, to be creative, mm-hmm. to follow whatever path we see our business should take. I hate to stop. That is a good answer, and I think it all starts with the Earth because we're very different geologically than they are over there. we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk beer. Okay. I'll just light my brow and get the sweat off here. Oh, you're doing great. Just, no. You're doing great. <laughs> All right, Niall, Zachary, it's fun talking to you, and we're going to talk some more in just a moment. We'll be back with more of Judd's Napa Valley Show from the Weeky Weeky Grog Shop right after these messages. And there we have it. So we're on break. You want to taste something? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, you know what? This is open, and I I just, yeah, so we're limited. Should we do this on the air, or... It doesn't have to be. We've got other beer to open. Well, actually, nothing for me because uh, i got to drive today. Okay. okay. Bob, wish you were with us right now. Uh, this our editor in Los Angeles. So. Right. Bob, we're drinking some, um, some grape-infused beer. Um, so it literally is kind of wow. like wine. No, it's the color of a Pinot Noir I had last night. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it's a little flat because um, it was already open before. And sometimes the beers, it's not a super carbonated lot anyway, or it will eventually get more carbonated. It just takes a while. Some of these certain beers take a little bit longer to carbonate. Bob Lauren's just going tinkle, but he'll be back in a moment. (laughs) This is a third vintage, so we've been able to, I keep ratcheting up the amount of fruit that goes in there. So it's like petite Syrah, destemmed, cold soaked, and then, oh, it's okay. I can do it again. You know, talk beer, wine, whatever. I just figured I'd be ready for anything. I've also got a coffee-infused beer. If you oh, drink coffee, I'm new to coffee. Really? Uh, well, it is. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really know yet. Mm. I'm trying to figure out. Well, do I like a light roast, a medium roast, a dark roast? Do I like arabica beans? Do I like the beans I've had from wherever, Jamaica, Ethiopia, mm-hmm. you know, Colombia? What? I don't. I don't know what my thing is yet. I'm in that discovery mode. Wow. Yeah. Now, what uh, are you kind of doing? Pour overs? Are you doing uh, espresso? Are you doing what's your kind of method of Lauren, extraction? We're back and we're talking. Well, we're talking coffee. Uh, <laughs> well, Nile, I don't. I don't know what my method is. We had a very old, very simple Mister Coffee, like a four cup Mister Coffee machine, because my father in law loved coffee, mm. so we had it for him, and it just sat in our pantry for years. Last summer, we were driving our kids to Berkeley every day for a week for a drama at a drama workshop at mm-hmm. the Berkeley Playhouse. So we were up at like five something. Had to be there. So you like needed something to kind of kick you out the door, yeah, huh? So, you know, then we spend all day in Berkeley or Oakland, which was really fun. I hadn't explored them in depth, you know, for a week straight. Got all this time to explore the area, but it's exhausted, you know, midday. So there's a lot of coffee shops sat down. Yeah. And my wife and I, we split, because she's not a coffee drinker either, we split a cappuccino, like one cappuccino for the two of us. Like, yeah, <laughs> both of us, yeah, exactly, both of us just lit up. We're like, this is nice, that tasted good, we feel good. <laughs> this, is, this could be for me. So yeah, so I, really all I have now still is that Mr. Coffee. I haven't mm. invested, because I, I just don't know yet. I haven't tried the pour over, I know that's mm-hmm. a thing. I haven't done the French press. I've never tried those pods, but people kind of steered me away from Yeah, those. stay away from pods. Yeah. I mean, if you want real coffee, I mean, everyone's got their own kind of, you know, perspective on it. Oh, I think what I've 
come away with over time just having a wine palette as if I were to use that as kind of the foundation of kind of my sensory exploration was based on the sensory science classes and, you know, just learning about nuance. Like I think that that's inevitably what makes good products really good is that they're not very monolithic, that they're kind of balanced and, you know, present all these different layers. And I think coffee can do that too if it's not over-roasted. And so there's a thing of how you roast and whether there are these first crack and second crack parameters to how you roast coffee. I'm I'm learning a little bit about that as well. Um, I think you remember way back. I mean, we still have the band, but I think you may have seen us once or twice. Our Mike Hijens, our Hawaiian band back in the day. I have not, unfortunately. I no, I but I always wanted to go, and I missed. Oh, you know, for some reason I pictured you at one of our like early Napa gigs. I I mean, maybe it was a fantasy of mine to have you there. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I was there. Well, our guitar player and co-founder of the band who left the band many years ago damn him well no no, we no still i'm just play, kidding i'm just um, kidding he had another path to follow and he entered seminary huh decided he was going to become a catholic priest wow yeah i mean it took him some years of um as he said uh, discerning his vocation which i thought was really interesting when he talked about the like what he went through to figure that out and then a year ago or so he made another choice and he decided to I mean, I say choice, but it sounds like there was a almost a compulsion, you know, but uh, the way he described it. But he left the seminary and entered uh, a brotherhood, an order of Benedictine order at a monastery in New Mexico. And there, so he's now, his name is Brother Brendan. Mm. He used to be Mike, you know, my buddy Mike. Now he's Brother Brendan, took on a name. Their thing at the monastery is they roast coffee. It's called Abbey Roast. Hmm. He just sent me some bags. I haven't tried them yet. Nice. But, um, you know, through him, I'm learning a little bit about the process, what you say. You know, there's the, the light rose. There's methodology to it. There's, you know, the different beans. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's what they do. And how you source it and the single origin side. I mean, that actually, I don't know if, you know, we want to delve too far into it, but there are a lot of parallels to what goes on in wine and, and coffee and chocolate, and for us now, beer. And what we're doing is basically an exact kind of re- reflection of that sort of idea of origin. All right, let's let's get into that. Let's let's officially start again. And okay, all right, Lauren, should we uh, get back into it? Sure. It's always Finkalicious on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Dad's Never Valley Show. Dad's Never Valley Show. Dad's Never Valley Show. Dad's Never Valley Show. You're listening to Dad's Never Valley Show. At 1440 on your AM dial in the San Francisco Bay Area and streaming live from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. at KVON.com. Back to Judd's Napa Valley Show from the Weeky Weeky Grog Shop. Thank you very much, Lauren Fogcutter Mole. Thanks. This is fun. I love doing shows from the Weeky Weeky Grog Shop. It's 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 great being in an antique bar, especially when you have something to drink. And our 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 guest Niall Zachary with us today. Thank you very much, Niall, for being here. Really enjoying talking to you. You're a, a vintner. You're a master brewer. During the break, you cracked open a bottle 
of your label. This is your own beer that you make commercially called Mad Fritz, which is taken wine country by storm. You want to talk a little bit about this? Sure, it's, it's, sure. It's, so Mad Fritz, just uh, to kind of get the name right, I'm not Fritz and I'm not mad, but actually my children are Madeline and Fritz. Uh-huh. So thus the, uh, it isn't an alter ego, as some might think. Yeah. I do have a little bit of that uh, crazy wiliness uh, about me, but um, or mad scientist, as some people call That's me. Cool. But uh, And many of these beers kind of maybe reflect that a little bit and the creative outlet that they uh, offer. But yeah, Mad Fritz Beers, uh, Mad Fritz Brewing Company, located in St. Helena, Napa Valley. And uh, yeah, so we're tasting a beer here that's called Fox and the Grapes. And I'm yeah, jump on it. I just want to jump in. You said, you know, kind of creative and um, mad scientist. And this this would convince me of that. I mean, you're pouring this out, and it's gorgeous. It is the color of a Pinot Noir that I had last night with dinner. It's this gorgeous, uh, you know, translucent burgundy color. You know, if you put this in front of me, I would say, why is my wine, why does my wine have a few little bubbles on top? Hey, your chocolate got my peanut butter. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, <laughs> it tastes pretty good. And it smells. These these are the times when I'm glad my nose is as big as it is because it's <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous. It's got these beautiful like kind of tropical fruit smells. Maybe it's because we're in a Polynesian style bar right now, but I'm getting kind of a tropical vibe off the, mm-hmm. off the nose. Yeah, it's the, Petite the Syrah. It's Petite Syrah that's infused into the beer during the brewing process. A kind of a thermal maceration using. Napa Valley 2016 uh, Petite Syrah. So oh, man, um, you know, most of the fermentables come from the grain, from the malted barley, but the color and a lot of that flavor comes from the Petite Syrah grapes. Yeah. So it looks like a wine. I call it a weir. So wine e- plus beer equals weir. Well, consider me a weirdo because this is yeah. I want more. Yeah. The fox and the grapes. Yeah. So they're all fables. So that's the other thing is there are quite a few critters and a lot of foxes, they get into trouble, mm-hmm. obviously. So if you've, if you're familiar with Aesop's fables, you know, the, the tortoise and the hare and, sure. you know, and these kind of morals that we've grown up, uh, hearing from our parents as we've grown up and some of the, many of them I'd never heard of. And of course the fox and the grapes is, is kind of a classic one when you, uh, can't get to something that you think you really want, then you realize you convince yourself that you don't, that you don't want it. So obviously the, the, uh, what's the, the moral here is the, uh, the grapes of dis- disappointment are always sour. So uh, we've rewritten the fables on every label along with including the origin of every ingredient that goes into the beer. And I think that that's what in general differentiates us is I like to call our beer origin beers because it's about the origin of the ingredients as well as kind of what we've crafted. But if you think about most beers that we drink today or have been drinking, there's very little uh, recognition of origin to the ingredients that go into that product. And so when we talk about our wines, we talk about the origin of these grapes sure. and where they came from. And that's really what we're talking about. I mean, we can talk about ourselves as winemakers or whatever, but really we're just stewards in this whole exercise. And uh, yes, the brewing process is a cooking process and there is a recipe involved. But ideally, if we could simplify that down and focus in on that origin and ingredients mm. and then trying to reflect that through this style of beer, that's in essence what Mad Fritz is about. Yeah, I've heard you use the phrase, you know, ingredients over process, and that, that makes a lot of sense. So well, let's talk about the different beers that you make. Uh, obviously, this one is 
you know, very wine centric with the petite Syrah in it and ingredients are very important to you. So what, what are you using? What are you sourcing? I, do you not grow some uh, of your own ingredients as well? Uh, yes. So we're uh, growing our own barley. And then uh, one of the biggest uh, challenges to growing your own barley is not only just kind of finding the land and the right land and then growing it properly, knowing how to grow it, which is grape growers and cover crop. You know, you know how to put your cover crops in, you know how to grow grapes and whatnot. But barley is kind of a different animal and, and these grains. So that was kind of the first year 2014 when we launched the brewery uh we started planting barley and we did about five acres and we managed to harvest uh about a ton from uh the fisher property up in um, calistoga that we haven't malted it yet but it took us we got the malting equipment we purchased from another maltster uh, up in reno that was the closest maltster here in california uh, to us in California, which is just kind of surprising. There's no one in California malting. That is uh, surprising with the amount of uh, craft brewing, distilling going on around here, especially in Northern California. Yeah, yeah. It was 800, 900 breweries or something like that that we're now at. Uh, there will be a, a, brewer, a malt house that'll be substantially uh, bigger than us, and they'll be selling malt to the to other breweries called Admiral Malting, and that's in the East Bay. So... We got a, I got a little bit of help from one of their, their head maltster and some of his equipment. And so we pieced it together over the last year. And finally, in December, we were able to malt some barley from uh, from farm up in Covalo in Mendocino that was grown up there. That, what does that mean, malting? That's when it Yeah, great question. Malting or? is, yeah, it's literally like, you know, you buy bean sprouts in the store. And it's literally like you've got a seed that the embryo starts to grow yeah. and the rootlets come out. And it's funny when you taste it, it's like, it, it kind of has this cucumbery sort of, it's like, you feel like, yeah, I'll put that on my salad and, you know, and then this would be great. You know, what you're doing is you're kind of, uh, initiating the growth of this barley seed and then kind of controlling that growth or monitoring it until you get to a certain growth p- point in the shoot, uh, or the, uh, embryos growth. And that kind of allows, uh, that'll eventually allow the brewer to utilize the enzymes that the plant was generating and access to the starch that they were going to you know, use to initially grow. Right, and so, so then you kiln it. And the kilning process is kind of like, again, like chocolate and, and coffee. How are you roasting? How are you finishing off this? And so the more you roast something, the more you take away from flavors. So we do, we focus on kind of a lower uh, some would say kind of more of a Pilsner malt style. So we're trying to really retain the flavor of that malt from its origin. And so we kiln at lower temperatures for longer. And that, you know, keeps, in my opinion, keeps a little bit more flavor from the original, you know, source. Oh, um, so that's the kilning process. So yesterday we were cleaning malt that we'd, we'd malted from Sonoma, from uh, Front Porch Farms up in oh. Healdsburg. So, I mean, what we're doing, like we've, Right now, we currently have a lineup of about 22 different beer styles, and they're sourced from five different maltsters from around the country uh, because we have to. And there are about uh, seven or eight different varieties of barley that go into each of those beer. And most beers are single variety beers of single origin from these craft maltsters. Mm-hmm. So that's what has added to our whole kind of supply side is is that you know i and i like to say that too like we're a supply side driven brewery versus you know not 
having that much impact and being more recipe process brand driven. I mean, obviously all those things are elements here, but if we can put a little more emphasis on the, on the supply, I think it, it reflects in the finished product a bit more. Yeah. Malting is that process. And I, I wondered, I hear that all the time and I, I didn't know what effect that has on the final product. What do you think about sour beers? Do you make a sour beer? No, we don't make yeah. sour beers. And and yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just say as a winemaker, I can't, I, and I can drink almost anything. I love to drink. I hate being drunk, but I like drinking. I, you know, wine, beer, cocktails, pretty much love it all. Sour beer is one of these things I just can't get down. And I don't know if it's because of my training as a, in, in the wine business that it, it, to me, that's just, it's, it's just spoiled. You know, to me, it's, it tastes like spoilage. Some yeah. other people love it. I mean, one man's trash is another's treasure, I guess. Yeah. Everything I grew up with tells me that that flavor means stay away, it's spoiled, throw it out, and I, I just can't do it. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there is the movement has grown over the last decade, um, and I, its inception has really begun with Goose, these kind of lambic beers from yeah. Belgium. And those beers were technically made using cultures that are pretty you know localized and most of the time those beers are pretty complex uh they can come off as spoiled but i often i often feel like they're not that sour like they're pretty well balanced the sour beers of today that i feel like have kind of filled the marketplace based on demand have lacked a few of those kind of layers. Um, there are ways of making sour beers very quickly by kind of promoting the microbiology mm-hmm. and really selecting for it, optimizing it, and then some things just kind of go too far. It's yeah. kind of like I've used the analogy with wine. It's like when back in the 90s and the 80s, you know, we talked about the basic chemistry of, let's say, a classic Napa Valley cab or even a Bordeaux cab, you know, going back to the Bordeaux question. Those numbers, if you just looked at that as kind of a, not like a recipe, but like kind of like you should be around this kind of area if you're doing this, you know, this is kind of roughly the numbers you want to see. Whereas today, you don't see those numbers at all. Like we're way beyond that, you know, as far as acidity goes. And, and that's it's the same with, same with sour beers. Sour beers are almost, I think the market, I think the production of the beers will evolve and it'll get better because people eventually, the, the market will be saturated with them and hopefully people will get educated enough to realize that, yeah, this is not that good of a sour beer. And then people won't be buying that. They'll be buying someone else's sour beer that's perhaps a little better. But yeah, I guess when it, I mean, the initial part of your question kind of, kind of brings to mind kind of my philosophy on that yeah. is don't make something unless you're really passionate about it. Don't do something unless you're really passionate about it. I mean, if it's all about the market and the sales, I think you kind of, you, you, move, you miss the opportunity to really do something special. And so for me, I, I think it's good to know the animal, like know how to make sour beers. I'm just... I don't, I don't really, I'm not inspired by them. It doesn't, not something that I want to make. And I, I mean, as much as I enjoy them, I just can't drink a lot of them. So I, you know, my beers, I can sit down and drink a bottle and really enjoy it. Let's talk about your beers. You know, what you said makes a lot of sense, but let's, let's focus on what you got here. You've got a few more bottles you pulled out and these are beautiful bottles. They're look like they're seven fifties with the, uh, what do you call this type of clasp? The rubber stopper. Yeah. I call it a swing top. Swing Um, top. Really nice, sturdy. Um, you know, if you're, uh, 
you could hang on to it and you know bottle your own uh, jams and jellies or something in those afterwards or syrups well, I guess or something kombucha whatever you're making, you know whatever yeah whatever you could hang on to these these are these are heirlooms you could hold on to these bottles the uh, Aesop fable inspiration where's that come from oh just Whitney thought of it you know our yeah, kids obviously were, were you know a bit younger about three years ago when we started three four years ago and we started working on the idea of what we would we would do for the the project and how we would kind of what kind of platform we wanted to kind of talk about our beers. It, d- it does seem to bring it kind of full circle when the name of the brewery is kind of after our children where here we are, you know, parents that are, you know, both winemakers. My wife's a winemaker, Fisher Vineyards, and I'm the winemaker, David Arthur Vineyards. And so it's kind of like there's that connection. And then like, well, you're, We've got Fontaine's book on Aesop's fables, and we're kind of reading these to the kids and talking about them. And then before you know it, Whitney's like, you know what? What do you think about Aesop's fables? So well, it's very cool. And now I'm going to ask you how you decide the name of each one. I mean, I'm looking at this one right here. The Fox and the Grapes. Makes sense. Yeah. There's Petite Syrah. Yeah. It's got a very grape look. It has a, a grape smell. It's, it's delicious. But the one right next to it is the old man and death. Okay. Yes. Like, what, I'm just thinking even just as a marketing point of view i know beer and wine have a different type of marketing vibe but to put the old man and death what what are you trying to conjure there what tell me about this beer what's in there and why that name well it's a i mean it's incredible looking image this old man is uh doing some hard work and uh you know and i think we can all attest you know some we have we all have those sticks or yeah some you know uh, and these are all prints that were made uh, back in the 17th century, so oh, 1687, yeah. So, fellow Francis Barlow did this all this artwork and wrote these fables, and um, and then we've we've rewritten them, of course, but we've used this artwork. It's in public domain, so yeah, it's an image, and the, conceptually, the idea is that you know, hey, we all have those days when you're just kind of like, God, I just I'm just tired of this you know mm. my mom used to say stop the world i want to get off but right. sometimes you you know me i just I, I just wish i were dead which is a pretty hard thing to say um you're, you're having a pretty bad bum day if you say something like that but you know when death shows up and says okay are you ready and you kind of go no and so the idea is when death is before us we all cling to life that's mm. the moral of the old man and death so obviously is this beer kind of put it's just a pep in your step, like get you back on the. Yeah, it on, could. On I mean, it's, it's certainly a meal. That down? It's a dark, rich imperial rye stout. So it's about eight percent alcohol typically. This one was aged a couple months in barrel. So all our beers are barrel aged, um, and they're naturally carbonated, unfined, unfiltered. But yeah, it just seemed like it had to be a dark beer, and it's just a cool looking label. I mean, it's oh, it's very much so. And it caught my immediately. Yeah. And uh, actually, it's pretty popular. You know, a lot of folks that come in know the beer and love it. And, we, you know, we're not trying to break some alcohol and beer barrier. We're just no. making a nice, uh, texturally balanced uh, imperial rice stout. And uh, I don't know. You want to taste it? If you're, if you're offering, I've, I make it a habit never to say no and offer to drink. So should I uh, rinse this out or just get a new glass? No, no, this no. Is... Just uh, dump that out. And this yeah. thing's pretty strong that it'll All right. it'll rinse. Okay. Ooh, nice. I've done Lauren, you're you're not drinking today. Yeah, not today. You're driving. You're very good. I'm I'm hanging out here for a while. Oh, that's plenty, sir. Yeah, I've got this. I'm not going anywhere for a while, Lauren. I'm just gonna relax and. You're drinking the old man and death, you know. But good thing you're young, so there's no that's problem true. there. We are in the prime of our lives, so. So yeah, this but once is. Once in a while, I do have those days, like you mentioned, like ugh, not too often. Luckily, life's good. All you have to do is look around you and say, hey. 
Just life is beautiful. Let's take a walk and we're in Napa Valley. Yeah. Okay, let's have a now this is, you know, deep brown, opaque. You know, can't really see through that. Beautiful. I mean it looks like a it looks like it might be a a delicious beer. A delicious beer. I was thinking, <laughs> well, well now that I'm just recently into coffee, you know, I'm comparing things to coffee because it has a, like a dark you know, coffee kind of look to it with a little bit of um, not exactly a foam or a spuma, but you know, nice little bit of bubbling on top. Beautiful smell. So you said this is rye. Yeah. So about fourteen percent of the the grain bill is rye, and then there's a little bit of uh, the main base malt in this is full pint barley, uh, grown in Brownsville, Oregon. So we know these farmers. I mean, talk to them on the phone. You know, we know where everything's from in each of these beers, and then that spent two months in a. Uh, once used Cabernet barrel. So you're always going to have these little subtle elements. So it's, we also don't tend to use the the whiskey or the bourbon barrels uh, just because we find it overwhelms some of these beers. And we've done it once before with Bounty Hunter and it was a lot of fun, but the beer took a while to come around and it just really overwhelmed the beer. This is delicious. I mean, the, the grains really come through too. The I mean, I would guess that there's rye in here and mm-hmm. I mean, it really is true to what it is. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's definitely a, a fun beer to make. And mm-hmm. also one of the things we aspire to do with our beer is make them as dry as possible too. So even though this is this kind of rich, thick stout, it's really kind of dry on the palate. It's not There's not a lot of residual sugar or complex carbohydrates left so that it kind of makes you want to have another sip or it's sure. going to go really well with food. In fact, food-friendly. Yeah, we're doing a beer dinner the, this coming Friday, the um, so uh, at Farmstead, and it's going to be oh, like nice. seven courses. So there'll be two dark beers, a dry stout, and then this stout actually. And so a lot of different, a lot of different fun things. Chefs love working with their beers because they play well with others. Yeah, and they have got great flavors that they can, you know, uh, compare, contrast, counterpoint, all that great stuff. That's really exciting. Thanks for sharing that. And you're right. Some of these big, rich, dark beers that I've had lately or touch on the sweet side as well, like high alcohol, but also, I guess, residual sugar. Is that what's going on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a balancing act. I just, I think that that's the essence behind, you know, you brought up the sour beer thing. Like if things are just sour, they're just sour, you know, but if you can kind of balance that with a lot of other characters, what inevitably happens in sour beer is that you now have the sour base and now you're taking fruit to kind of offset that. And that's where you see kind of sour beer with, this added sour beer with mango sour beer with plums sour beer with raspberries sour beer with and you know it it's got its place but i think you know there's there's a balance there and and so i think inevitably i i do know our beers vary quite a bit uh that's just the nature of the beast when you're doing what we're doing and the barrel aging and whatnot do you make each one year to year like this the old man and death or not year to year but are there different how does it work with beer? Is it a vintage? You mentioned vintage for the Fox and the Grapes because the vintage for the Petite Syrah, but are you doing a batch, say, of the Old Man and Death every couple months? Is it a yearly thing? What's the process there? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on whether we have the ingredients. So mm-hmm. right now we're out of Brownsville, you know, full pint barley. So mm-hmm. we can't use those labels. We can't make that beer, right? right? Anything that has that, that raw material in it, we can't make it because we don't have it. So if, you know, we can't just go changing the stuff around and using different things, otherwise we're really not being true to what we do. Um, so there are certain beers that, you know, we make for a while and then we run out of the ingredients. And I was just talking with one of our hop suppliers and we have it from this particular farm in Yakima. And I only have, 
three batches of, of a certain beer I can make with those hops. That's going to be it. That's all. You know, until I can track down some more from them um, or if some people release some in contract or whatever. So when you're kind of this limited and you add it all on the label, I can't just kind of maneuver around that. No, no, I need you're to. Committed. Yeah. And so we use different waters. We've got a, we recently, last year, we recently got a sprinter van so we can tote waters from different springs and add them to the, the matrix. So sometimes they're beers, pH level, different mineralities. Yeah. And we don't mess with the mineralities. We leave the mineralities the same. We don't uh, add salts or anything to adjust it. We just let it ride. And so it creates a lot of personality. Several beers we have from Calistoga water wells, like we get from Chateau Montalena and Fisher and El Molino, which is kind of on the border there, are often, uh, you know, I can't make those beers unless we have the water. Right, so right. it's like, you got it? You can't do it. That's you know, so, so those kind of limit you a little bit in the process and, and then slow down the ability to kind of make one. So you know, it makes it very interesting, at least for the consumer. Yeah, I'm sure you have fun with it, but the consumer is going to be looking for that type of stuff. You know, I'm totally intrigued now, having known not that much about your beer, having had it a couple of times, but not really sitting down and getting the whole story. Now I'm totally intrigued. You know, I'm going to be looking really carefully at each uh, label I see and figuring out, ooh, this water came from here, and how much of that does he have left? I wonder. And if somebody wanted to get the beer, how do they do that? Uh, they have to make an appointment to come to the brewery if they wanted to buy purchase a bottle. Uh, that would be the way to do it. And then we do have a membership program. So we offer uh, annual subscriptions to a membership. And that gives you different levels of beer in which you basically buy the beer in futures. But then you get the best of the best. Okay, so all that's sent out. It's kind of like a wine club. Would yeah, work, you or? pick up or or you can come up with a third party that can, you know, pick it up for you and, and, and ship it to you. Oh, um, I see. you but we you don't, don't we don't ship. We've just you. even... California sometimes will will help some members out or people that that call in and are pretty adamant about getting the beer and we'll, we'll, you know we're there to help but we also don't want to be just totally delving into the shipping world at all. It'll take over your life and you mm-hmm. as you said you've got a you said it earlier a day job. Yeah, this I'm sure this is a day job as well. But you mm-hmm. know you're a winemaker for uh, David Arthur so. You put shipping into the mix and there's like logistics craziness. Yeah. Yeah. We already struggle with it, but being what, who we are, it's, you know, service and follow up. That's what we want. That's, you know, obviously we need to offer that as well. So you've got to back up your product no matter what. So then the other way to get the beer is to get it um, at restaurants and some uh, bars. So locally we're at uh, Farmstead, uh, we're at Auberge, we're at the Girl and Fig uh, in Sonoma, we're at uh, Brasswood, Two Birds, One Stone. Um, Some good placements around Wine the, Country. The uh, Palisades Tap Room here in Napa. They serve a little Judd's Hill uh, keg wine. Ah. Too, so I recommend folks go down and try the... Uh, they make it up. They call it... Um, they make the blend themselves with us. And they call ah. it um, Kong Cuvée. Kong Cuvée. Kong Cuvée. All right. I'll have to check um, that out. A lot of petites are on it, so it might go well with a... Yeah. With this box a little weird. Price points? Basically 25 to $30 at the brewery. We do, we're working on our, another kind of the stuff that we're growing here in Napa Valley. We have about 24 acres planted for this uh, harvest coming up in June, July. And that'll go into our kind of local origin series. So it'll be a little bit more expensive just because we're growing and malting it ourselves. And that takes time and energy. But, uh, you know, again, it's uh, it's a pretty interesting landscape out there when it comes to kind of doing it from the ground up or what we like to call farm to foam uh 
<laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that one. It sounds like you got your hands full of brewing beer, making wine, kids. Um, you do anything for fun? You oh, yeah. Time? You still skating? <clears throat> oh, no. Right? Well, I've had a hip resurfacing uh, oh. a couple years ago, which has been magical. And I probably have to get my other one done. It's skateboarding. I, I don't think you were like an Olympic figure skater. No, yeah. no. It was, it was skateboarding, you know, genetics and whatnot. But I've been big on cycling for a while, road yeah. cycling, mountain biking, um, and was just out mountain biking on Sunday, uh, getting some yayas out and, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to burn off some of the... Uh, the, f- the good food and, yeah. and good wine and beer we drink so and well, enjoy so Napa Valley lifestyle. yeah there you go burn off the lifestyle this has been great so fun to try these but now it's time to play everyone's favorite party game here on Judd's Napa Valley show this is Mad Libs that's right it's time to play our Mad Libs style fill in the blank word game Niall since you and I are uh, about the same age we probably both grew up playing Mad Libs I'm sure you know how this works yes yes he's He's, yes, he's I'm ready. Protecting the beer right now. Protect it's the beer. Be wild. Okay, so we're just going to go for it. You ready? Okay. First thing I'm going to need from you is an adverb. Hmm. An adverb, uh, you hmm. know, an L-Y. How about uh, inadvertently? Inadvertently. I think I even know Perfect. how to spell that. Yeah, one. there you go. Yeah. Uh, how about a um, an adjective or, or a state of being type word? You know, like hmm. the, the way something could could. Be in a state. Have a weirdness. Got to me. Oh, what's that? Weirdness. Yeah, that's what I was feeling right now. Trying to describe being that weird. Maybe beer. Weirdness. Weird. Not just weird, but weirded. Weirdness. Weirdness. Got it. Goes with yeah. the weird. Yeah, your your wine beer. The weird. An adjective. Another adjective. How about Judd is dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad choice of words. Why? Thank you, sir. <laughs> An adjective. Another adjective. Yes, we're on an adjective roll. Okay. How about innocuous? All right. A plural noun. So in this case, more than one thing, not a person or a place, but things. Mm. Yeah, animals come to mind, but how about like kittens, like a litter of kittens or something like that? Oh, I like that. Litter of kittens. Excellent. A verb, an action word. Hmm. Let's see. The kittens got sick. They might be... Vomiting, maybe. <laughs> oh, okay. The verb is vomit. Yeah, I don't want to clean that and, one up. And um, finally, a verb ending in s. Let's see. How about uh, we kind of talked about skating, skateboarding, but how about rollerblading or something like rollerblades? Rollerblades. We'll see how this works, but I love the image. Anyway, rollerblading just makes me laugh. Or vomiting something. kittens on rollerblades. Is that where we're going here? I don't know. I hope so. Let's find out, shall we? Earlier today, I was on your very own website, madfritz.com. And if folks are looking, that's M-A-D-F-R-I-T-Z.com. And there was a little section uh, that really just kind of describes your beers and what, what they're all about. And you have just uh, rewritten a portion of that via this Mad Libs game Uh-oh. right now. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. This is from the madfritz.com website. I may have to change this thereafter, right? <laughs> you might have to change it to this. This might be better copy. We'll find out. <laughs> I have a feeling not, though. Here it is. All of our beers are inadvertently carbonated in the bottle or the keg, and they will evolve due to this weirdness. <laughs> I like that. Or, in some cases, dynamic fermentation. That's mm, good. That's yeah, good. It's dynamic. You might want to use that, actually. Yeah. We suggest you serve our beers in innocuous glasses or bold litters of kittens. Hmm. Oh, wow. 
Mm, weird. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, that is weirdness. It could come off. You can have a lot of hair in your mouth from I'm, that. I'm picturing like some kittens. Anyway. Well, we could do like a kitten filtration. Think of the flavors. I'm just thinking of the hits on YouTube you'd get for that. Yeah. That would be amazing. Okay. This will dissipate the carbonation some and allow the beer. Oh, no. You're not going to like this. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I know where this is going. And, 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 oh, no. Please, everybody, uh, don't don't read this part of the website. The, the rules are I must continue. Uh, here we go. This will dissipate the carbonation some and allow the beer to vomit. <laughs> oh, dear. That just means oh, it comes geez. out of the bottle fast. That's, all, that's, that's like a inside <laughs> brewer's lingo for just pouring out some beer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We would never use that like to, with the consumers. Or You're getting some real inside baseball here. Right? Yeah, this is that's like very hip, him. Yeah. hip uh, jargon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, they'll allow the beer to do that as the flavors will continue to evolve in the glass and as it rollerblades. Around your palate. Around your palate. Perfect. Proof. Nile, Zachary, such a pleasure wow. to sit down and talk to you. And try well, thank you so beers. much, you guys, for having me here and enjoying our uh, dynamic, weird, innocuous beers. <laughs> Anytime. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. Aloha. From the Wiki Wiki Grog Shop in the beautiful Napa Valley, this is fog cutter Lauren Mole speaking for Judd's Napa Valley Show, a Gil Lamar production. Judd's Napa Valley Show.